Well, I want to welcome those of you who are joining us live online, or maybe you're coming back and watching this later in the week in the archive version, but it's good to have you be a part of worship with us at Freedom Church, as well as all of you who have been able to assemble on campus here today. So glad to have you here as we dive into a brand new sermon series that's entitled, Don't Miss the Point. You know, there are a lot of different areas in life where we are apt to know some of the facts, but completely miss the point. Uh, Everybody who's ever been married has certainly experienced their spouse doing that, where we'll know the facts but miss the point. We we can do this in a lot of different areas of life. I mean, think about like in the whole education system and that, that whole plan, how many times we really miss the point. I mean, think about when you were in school or students, for those of you who are still in school, think about how much of the time you devoted to making a passing grade. Or making a whatever on the test, whatever your goal was. If you're a, you know, a high achiever, think about how many times the point for you was just to make the A. But along the way, how did we try and do that? For most of us, the goal was to do the minimum amount of work to get the grade that we were after, right? It's like if you could make the grade on the report, the paper, or the test without reading the book, if you could do it with just the spark notes or just the, the Cliffs notes... Why read the book, right? I mean, isn't that the way that it works? I mean, so much of school kind of goes that way. It's like, ah, I don't read the textbook because if I just take notes in class, I can make the grade. You ever just step back and think about how much we've missed the point that you go to school to really learn, to learn about life, to learn about history, to build a foundation. And yet when we're there in it, we really do kind of miss the point. As if the point were to make a grade, the point's never to make a grade. The point is to learn. It's easy to miss the point in politics. We could give any number of different examples, but but one case in point that is very much in our faces all the time, when you think about the whole issue of government and religion, and we live in a time where, you know, the, the drum that's constantly being beaten, we've got to make sure that there is a clear wall of separation between church and government. And, and yet we, we live in an era where we've missed the point in this regard. We're probably all familiar with the First Amendment to the Constitution, the very beginning of the Bill of Rights, which tells us that Congress shall make no law uh, concerning religion or the free exercise thereof and when you know the context in which this was written and the something of the lives of the men who penned this most of whom had a deep faith in God and you understand that they came out of a situation where the government established which denomination within the Christian faith was going to be the official church of England and how much of a turnoff that was for them and how much they as followers of Christ longed to have the freedom that that you could freely express your faith and that Congress couldn't come in And pass laws saying, you've got to belong to this church. This will be our church. That it made perfect sense why they did what they did. And why they would say, and Congress won't make any laws that will restrict our ability to exercise our faith. When you know something of their lives and their faith and how they express that in every area of life, including public office, it's so easy to understand their intention. But you let some time pass. You get a couple of hundred years or more beyond that. You get to the time in which we live and people miss the point. And we take what was very well-intentioned and carefully worded and we turn it into, oh, so what this means is nobody who has any connection with any type of governmental office all the way to the point of if you are a school teacher, don't you dare talk about Jesus. 
Well, you've totally missed the point if you turn a line about Congress not establishing a state church into don't you dare talk about Jesus wherever you are in, in any office or, or any role, any job that's connected to the government. You've just totally missed the point. We can miss the point, even though we know some of the facts in a lot of different areas of life. But there's no place where we're more prone to miss the point than in the area of our personal faith. And within the Christian faith, it's so easy to know some of the facts and completely miss the point. We live in a time when much of of the American church large segments of the American church, we fall into different camps. And two of the camps that are pretty easy to recognize fall on opposite ends of the spectrum. On the one hand, and most everybody here that's from this region that's grown up in the Bible Belt will easily recognize this camp. There is one camp that's still quite large in America and still strong in the Bible Belt, and that is the Christian camp that's made up of legalists and legalistic churches. How many of you have ever been in a legalistic church before? Bless your heart, I have to. You probably bear the scars of it somewhere having been there. You know what that's like. Christian faith is all about rules. And whether or not they're written down and posted on a wall anywhere, if you go to those churches, if you hang out with those people, you find out very quickly what their rules are about. Now, we we won't go through articulating what all of those look like. It really doesn't matter. The bottom line is there are a bunch of churches which have uh, sort of cherry-picked certain scriptures and said, this is what Jesus was all about. This is what Christianity is all about. It's a list of to-dos and not to-dos. Things that you can't do and that you must do. And if you don't cooperate with this list, you don't really belong with us. That's one end of the spectrum. And those churches, by the way, have been gradually losing their place in the culture. Not rapidly, but over time. There's still a lot of them around, but very slowly they've been dwindling in size because they're not appealing. For good reason. I mean, who needs that, by the way? Anybody just hungry to have more rules to have to obey? Anybody that just doesn't have enough of a burden in your life? If you don't, I could recommend some churches to you. They will wear you out. They will beat you down. It's easy to see why they're not growing and they are slowly declining. But at the other end of the spectrum, there are churches and whole denominations and quite honestly, most of the churches that we would, would summarize as being a part of the mainline Christian traditions, I'm saying that in a technical sense, these would be uh, the less conservative denominations. Many of these churches and denominations have arrived at a completely different conclusion. They have gone as far from being legalist as you possibly can be to the extent of just saying we really don't need any any rules or specific definitions of what it means to be a Christian. And in fact, we don't want to really get specific about sin and right and wrong. What we believe is that Christian faith is much more subjective in nature. And you need to sort of find the parts that work best for you. I had a a friend who uh, sent me a link this week to an article that was written by a Presbyterian uh, minister. He still is actively a minister in the Presbyterian a USA denomination, and he is an atheist and doesn't make any bones about that. Uh, and he exp- you may think he's crazy, but he's not. Uh, he's actually a fairly intelligent guy, and he articulates a position. It's very interesting to read because it so well summarizes 
the the left hand extreme of the spectrum and he goes through and explains why he chooses to hold on to what he defines as the Christian tradition because he says there's so much good within Christianity you know we love the art we love the architecture we love uh, some of the ethics that we've been taught we love you know all of these different things that add to you know who and what we are but we've come to understand that a lot of what we read in the Bible isn't true and doesn't hold up to, to careful examination. And he said, you know, no, I don't believe in a supernatural being. And while I, I know Jesus was a historical figure, can't accept all this stuff about him doing the miraculous and being raised from the dead. But, you know, I will use the term God to simply summarize the concept, though he's not a person. I'll use the word God because it's hard to be a minister and not talk about God, which I thought that was, was pretty interesting. He said, but when I say God, that's just code for uh, every." Everything that is beautiful, everything you know that is meaningful. Uh, I use the term God to, to speak of things like the healing that we need. All, all that is good, I just call that God. And he said, in our church, we're just sort of tagged as a BYOG church. Just bring your own God. Or, he says, it's perfectly fine in our church if you don't want to believe in any God at all. And you just bring whatever you like or want in the Christian tradition. And he said, you know, for me personally, the thing that I like to hold on to is how Christianity advances the cause of social justice. And so he said, for me, the way that I try and apply that is in defending the gay, lesbian, bisexual, and transgender part of the community which has been oppressed and which the church has mistreated. And so we fight for, among other things, more than anything else, the justice for, for that group of people. And in all of that, he says, we, we have embraced a version of Christianity that we call beliefless Christianity. Where you don't have to believe in anything, you just hold on to what you like. Now, I realize that is the most extreme from the more liberal end, but it, it really is a pretty good articulation of where that movement is taking us if you, if you follow that lead. You don't have to believe any particular thing. You don't have to leave, live any particular way. You just find for you what fits and what works. Well, I've got really good news for you in all of this. That group is not growing. It is in significant decline. Now, now in that, Jordy, we are glad that you're here, brother. <laughs> it is always good to see you, Jordy. <laughs> Welcome. In that movement, the denominations which have, uh, have just so embraced that and have said, you know, kind of anything goes, man, those mainline denominations are going down the tubes numerically in America. They are just losing people right and left. And, and what's going on there, this is very interesting to know, and I'm going I'm to move past this. This is just the intro, but baby boomers and baby busters, this is the generation that's just older than me and then my generation, have made up the vast numbers of people who have been in those denominations as well as in evangelical denominations as well. And that crowd, kind of my age and older, have basically said those who are a part of the mainline denominations, which have just become more and more liberal by and large, have said enough. We don't buy into this idea that Christianity doesn't stand for anything, that Jesus didn't really stand for any specific ideals, or if he did, you know, we've gotten beyond that and we can let that go. And a bunch of people have just walked away from that. And so they, they've lost tons of people along the way. But there's an interesting and, and sort of disturbing thing that's taking place among the millennials, a younger generation, who have seen both extremes. They've seen the legalists and said, 
don't need that, I'm not about to go to that church. And who've seen the more liberal expressions of Christianity. The millennials are deeply spiritual, but they are not very churched. They are just turned off to most expressions of the church. But this more liberal version has a bit more appeal to them because it's just more wide open to whatever, kind of whatever works for you. And there are pieces to this idea that have appealed for the younger generation. By and large, they haven't bought in to any church expression of Christianity. And so really the millennials, most of them aren't in church anywhere, period. But of the two extremes, they're more drawn to the more liberal side of things. Here's what I want to say today. Neither of the things that I have described to you have anything to do with Jesus. Jesus wouldn't belong to either camp. Jesus wouldn't go to either church. Actually, he probably would once or twice. He'd he'd blow it up with his words. He was really good at that. He'd walk into the religious institutions of his day that had gotten far off center, and which in his day, they all got off center on the side of legalism. And every time he walked in the door, he made just a ruckus because he'd stand up and teach and what he said just went head to head against the the teachings of the day and you know they'd be ready to stone him before the service was over what we want to do over the course of the next four weeks is really home in on the real person of jesus and the real message of jesus because so many times today because we live almost two thousand years after the fact and because many of us have been exposed to far more church and just sort of a general sense of, of Christian tradition and Christian culture, even though it's not in, in its truest sense, it may not be Christian, it just gets called Christian. We get exposed to the people without spending a lot of time with the person of Jesus. We get exposed to the people who say, oh yeah, we're followers of Jesus without having personally spent a lot of time with Jesus or maybe having been really well versed in the, the totality of Scripture, and particularly of the Gospels and of the New Testament. And what we can wind up is either sucked into one of these really unhealthy places, or we can find ourselves just totally turned off. Because we don't like these, these morphed versions of Jesus or of Christianity. And what we want to do today is, and over the next three weeks after today, is to get centered back in on Jesus, who He was, His message, and how would He do ministry if He were here today. There are five things that I want to say to you today to get back to the heart of the matter as we kick this thing off about how do we keep from being this type of Christian or this type of Christian? How do we stay centered on Jesus and his message? Well, five things I want you to know about Jesus this morning as we start. And the first one is this, that Jesus' mission was to reach and save sinful, broken, messed up people like you and me. Jesus did not come for religious people who had it all together. Jesus only came for broken people. Aren't you glad to know that? And let me, te- let me ask that again. Aren't you glad to know that Jesus came for broken people? Hey, let me tell you, if, if you are here because you've got it all wired together, you're in the wrong place. You're not going to fit in here because the church is made up of broken people whose lives are being put back together by Jesus. One of my favorite verses of the Bible is John three seventeen. We all know John 3.16, and it is such a a wonderful passage. But verse 17 is so powerful, where Jesus said, God didn't send His Son into the world to condemn its people. He sent Him to save them. Jesus came knowing that the people that He was after were so messed up. Their lives were just chaotic in every way that you can imagine. And that's who He wanted to reach out to. 
He wasn't after people who got it cleaned up enough so that they could look good on Sunday morning and, and, you know, say the right things and believe the right things. He came for people who were beyond being able to help themselves. And I love the description that Matthew gives us in uh, Matthew chapter 9. It's interesting that Matthew is writing about Jesus coming to his own party. Matthew writing about Matthew here. And it, the uh, message translation, Peterson does such a cool job of, of just putting this in good modern day and almost southern lingo. When he says, later when Jesus was eating supper at Matthew's house with his close followers, a lot of disreputable characters came and joined them. When the Pharisees saw him keeping this kind of company... They had a fit and lit into Jesus' followers. That just sounds like a good southerner. It just had a fit and lit into them. What kind of example is this from your teacher acting cozy with crooks and riffraff? Jesus, overhearing, shot back. Who needs a doctor, the healthy or the sick? Go and figure out what this scripture means. And now he quotes a little passage from the Old Testament, from the prophets, when he says, I'm after mercy, not religion. I'm here to invite outsiders, not to coddle insiders. Do you get the point of what he's saying there? It's really, it's good news. But for those of us who grew up in church, I mean, I've been in church all of my life plus nine months. I mean, I've been in church since nine months before I was born. And for those of us who've been in church all of our lives, we probably ought to be a little disturbed by Jesus' words because he's saying, I didn't come to stroke you guys that have been in church forever. I came to reach those on the outside who haven't found me, who haven't found faith, who haven't found forgiveness. I didn't come to reaffirm you who've been in the church forever. This we have to know about Jesus. He was never shocked. When lost people acted like lost people. In fact, he was so perfectly at home connecting with lost people who just did the things that lost people ought to do. He, they, who did the things that human nature is going to lead them to do. And so he's hanging out with people who are crooks and liars and drunkards. And who overate and who swore and who just did everything that you can imagine. And the religious elite were going, what is the deal? Disciples of Jesus, talk to your teacher. He is out of line. He is hanging out with the sorriest scum in town. And Jesus said, what did you expect? You think, well, people need the doctor? I'm the doctor, spiritually speaking, and it's the sickest people who need me. So that's who I'm after. That's who I'm going to spend time with. So what are the implications of that for us today? It's not real hard to figure out, is it? That our target in relationships, our target as a church, it's not people who go to other churches to see if we can invite them here so we'll be bigger than they are. Our target is always people who are outside the family of faith. People who are hurting, people who are in need, people whose lives are broken, whose families are fractured, whose marriages are coming apart. People who are struggling with addiction and depression and all kinds of things that are making their lives miserable and who really don't have any hope apart from a power beyond themselves, a power which has a name, Jesus. Jesus said, that's who I've come for. That's who we've got to be here for. And that means that in this place... Some of you who've gathered here today, some of you who are watching online today, you feel like, I would hate for anybody to know my real story. 
I would be mortified if anybody knew that I, and you fill in the blank, be terrified for anybody to know how many people I've slept with, to know how much I drink, to know that I'm hooked on pills, to know that I look at porn all the time. Whatever the thing is that's your shame story, that you would just be so sick for that to be told. Some of you are watching online today because it's uncomfortable to even come in a place like this because it's like, I don't feel like I fit with those people. Let me say to you, you fit. You belong. I I can't even call you an honored guest because you're not a guest. You're just one of us if you're that broken. We're all broken people. Those are the only people that Jesus came for. And it doesn't mean that we glory in our brokenness. No, we just glory in the goodness of a God who says, I see that sorry mess that is a significant part of your life. And I'm able to make something whole and good out of that. Jesus was all about that. So you may feel like God wouldn't love you and wouldn't want to be a part of your life. You may feel like the church would look at you and go, if that's your story, we don't want you. I want to tell you the opposite is true. Jesus loves you. Jesus came for you. And we are here for you because you are just one of us. You belong in this place. The second thing that we want to say about Jesus is that Jesus was very clear and upfront about right and wrong. It might be easy to draw the wrong conclusion when you hear that Jesus was so open to people who were into every bad thing that you can imagine that Jesus might have just been a guy who's like, well, anything goes. I don't care how you live your life. It's all good with me. And yet the very opposite of that was true. Jesus was so clear on sin. Now, we just talked about two camps, you know, the legalistic camp of churches. All they want to talk about is sin and just people who are bad and the judgment of God. But in the other camp, it's like we are never going to talk about sin We're just going to smile and talk about the love of God and the prosperity we're all supposed to live in and how Jesus wants us all to be rich and happy and healthy and blah, 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 blah. But we're never going to talk about sin. I want to tell you that the real Jesus, oh my goodness, would he ever more talk about sin? He would talk about every one of our sins. He would get so specific. I'll give you just one example. In uh, Mark chapter 7. He's Jesus speaking and he's talking to both the religious leaders and to a larger crowd of just ordinary people. And he says to them, for from within, out of a person's heart, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, wickedness, deceit, lustful desires, envy, slander, pride and foolishness. All these vile things come from within and they are what defile you. I mean, there's nothing shy or subtle about that, is there? He's not saying, oh, don't worry about it. I mean, you know, we've all got something wrong. So it's just, you know, I won't talk about your stuff and you don't talk about my stuff. No, Jesus is saying, you don't get to blame it on the world. You don't get to blame it on the devil. You want to know what's wrong with you? It's your heart. It's how you think and it's what you long for. The biggest problem is inside of you. And let's get specific about what some of those problems look like. And he makes a list that runs far and wide. I mean, he talks about the stuff that we can all go, yeah, that's right, Jesus. You jump on those thieves and those murderers and those adulterers. Ooh, ooh, wait a minute now, Jesus. Back back off now. Let's don't let's don't go too far. Let's just bash those people doing the things that we don't do. But you know, he, he starts naming off all kinds of other things. Pride, slander, deceit, lustful desires. And he's hammering all of those equally. I mean, 
Basically, he's going across the board. He's nailing the stuff that we would call the big sins. And then he's jumping just as hard on the things that we would easily excuse and overlook. And he says, all of these things are the vile things in our hearts that defile us. He's not afraid to talk about sin. And in fact, maybe the best example is in Jesus' most famous message in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6, and 7. I want you to hear what Jesus says as he's addressing a larger crowd, but he's doing it in a context where the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, they're the camp over here that it's all about the rules. You better live by our rules And they're like the professional Christians of Jesus' day. And here's what he says to the crowd. He says, you must obey God's commands better than the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. Better than they obey them. If you don't, I promise you, you will never get into the kingdom of heaven. Holy smoke. I mean, did you hear how blunt that is? You know, people today love to to say, you're being judgmental. Like, could anything be more in your face? He says, you see these guys who... They've made a full-time practice out of keeping the rules. I want to tell you, if you don't obey God better than them, I promise you, you won't go to heaven. Implication, they aren't getting in. Ouch. That's pretty tough coming from the lips of Jesus. He goes on to say, and what he's going to do, he just said, you know, you better obey the commands more carefully than they do. And now he's going to show us what he means by obeying the commands more carefully. We don't have time to unpack the whole Sermon on the Mount. But... just paragraph after paragraph, what he does is he takes the teachings of the Pharisees, the teachings of the law, and he expands on them where their focus has been on you better not get caught doing this thing. And he always takes us back to a bigger principle of the heart to say, oh, it's bigger than follow the list. Don't get caught doing this. And just one example is he says, you know, the commandment which says be faithful in marriage. But I tell you that if you look at another woman and want her, you're already unfaithful in your thoughts. Do you see how he just said, okay, the law, which is about an external behavior, don't have sex with another man's wife. And the Pharisees could say, I'm a good Christian or I'm a good Jew. You know, I haven't had sex with anyone else's spouse. I've done the right thing. And Jesus says, you missed the point. Because every time you look at another woman, every time you look at another man and you lust after them, you've already committed adultery in your heart. What? I thought I was keeping the rules. And Jesus is trying to drive home the point. It was never about a list of rules. I'm wanting to change who you are from the inside. I want to radically transform who you are. And keeping the rules could never do that. And he goes on to say, This is so serious that if your eye causes you to sin, poke it out and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to end up in hell. He goes on to say, toward the very end of the sermon, Not everyone who calls me their Lord will get into the kingdom of heaven. Only the ones who obey my Father will get in. This is the the tension that that we have to wrestle with and live with. We are a grace people. Thank goodness we live in the age in which we live, following the Reformation. We live in a time when we're we're no longer under the oppressive teaching that the way that you get to heaven is through good works and you've got to go to the priest and do your confession and you've got to give enough money and, and pay the price for your sins so that hopefully you can get in through the system of things that you do. And thank the Lord that He has led the church 
to reject that heresy and to return to a sound understanding that it's not through the good things that we have done, that it is through the blood of Jesus and faith in Him that we're saved. And so, thankfully, in the Reformation tradition, and those of us who have followed in that, we understand that we are saved by grace through faith and that alone, that that is what saves us. But here's the tension that we have to hold on to, and too many churches are not holding on to both parts of this. We are a grace people, but we must be a grace people who embrace the whole teaching of the New Testament and from the lips of Jesus, who says again and again, it is only the one who obeys my Father who will ever enter the kingdom. We don't like that part of the teaching, do we? Now, let's be clear. He's not saying faith... Plus, enough good works will be enough to satisfy God and He'll let you in. That is absolutely not what He's saying. But what He is saying is that if you belong to me and you follow me, then it will become your priority to obey me. And so how you live your life really does matter. So here's a Jesus who is completely at home and comfortable. He is very much at ease with people who were swearing and acting up and sleeping around, getting drunk, whatever. He is so at ease to be with these people because it's who he loves and who he came for. And yet in the middle of all of that, he can talk clearly about sin and about how, how much it matters, how we live. And he would talk about eternity and heaven and hell and who gets in and who does not. And saying, your behavior matters. Because if you follow me, you can't continue in your sin. You feel the tension in that? You step into the world. You don't participate in its junk. But you communicate a message that says, God loves you. But he doesn't want to leave you like you are. And how you live your life really matters. And that really brings us to the third truth. And it is this. That Jesus confronted people's sins without condemning the people. Most of the time. Most of the time. There is a caveat. One really big caveat about the condemnation of Jesus. And we're going to cover it in the fourth truth. But in the vast majority of situations, there was no condemnation for Jesus. He would simply speak truth and grace into every situation. If you've got your Bibles... It's the one passage I want you to look up with me. John chapter 8. It is one of my favorite stories in all of the Bible. And it is one of the two passages in the New Testament that significant sized passages that wasn't in the oldest versions of the Greek. It got added just a little bit later. Doesn't mean that it didn't actually happen. It did. It just may not have been in the first version that John wrote down. I think personally that John realized that this was a story that needed to be added to the narrative because John was so careful in articulating from the very first chapter of what he wrote about Jesus, that Jesus is the only begotten who came from the Father full of grace and truth. Hold on to those two words, grace and truth. Because you see, the two extremes that we talked about could sort of be summed up with those two words. On the truth side, we could just say, oh yeah, we're going to tell you the truth. Legalists love to talk about the truth. We're, going to, we're just giving you the truth of the Word of God. And usually what we're doing is we're swinging the hammer part of the Word of God to give you the, the, you know, the rules. And on the grace side, we could just say, it's all good. We're all under grace. Jesus died to cover all of our sins, so it doesn't really matter what you do. As long as you ask forgiveness, you just keep on with your life. Well, Jesus was neither of those camps. Jesus was the center of it all, always full of grace and truth. And there's no story in the New Testament that is more the embodiment of the balance of grace and truth than what we're going to read, the story of the woman caught in the act of adultery. 
John 8, 1 says, But Jesus went up to the Mount of Olives, and at dawn he appeared in the temple courts. This is the, these big concentric courtyards surrounding the temple. It's where all of the, the busy activity would take place, a lot of trading, and as well as people coming for worship and to, to bring sacrifices. So all the people gathered around him, and they sat down, and he sat down to teach them. In, in ancient times, the teacher sat, everyone else stood. Aren't you glad we changed that tradition with time? You know, we'd have one chair in the room instead of a couple of hundred. So uh, the teachers of the law and the Pharisees, in, in the middle of this, Jesus' teaching, they interrupted and they brought in a woman caught in adultery. And they made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery, and in the law Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now, what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. And it actually was a brilliant trap, by the way. I mean, I want you to feel the full tension that Jesus is facing right here. Because the, the religious leaders in Jesus' day, they were so angry about Jesus because not only did he not embrace their tradition, he was blowing it up. He was, he was constantly tearing away at the foundations of what they were teaching by bringing in a message of grace and how he was the fulfillment of the law. And they're like, no, it's about the rules. Tell them about the rules. And so they want to expose Jesus as a false teacher, one who is not upholding the Scriptures. And as they talked about it and thought about it, they, somebody said, I've got a great idea. You know, Jesus is so soft on sin. Legalists hate that. People who, are, who don't constantly bash sin. and so Jesus is clearly soft on sin. I mean, look at him. Look at the ragtag bunch of losers and sinners that he calls his disciples. I mean, he's got a tax collector that's one of his disciples. One of the women is reported to have been a prostitute, one of his closest friends, one of his supporters, and he counts her as a close friend. What kind of religious leader would do that? And so they say, we know what we should do. In the middle of Jesus' teaching, right there in the temple courtyards... We all know about people who are into bad stuff. And so let's go in a situation where we know somebody's sleeping around and let's grab the couple. No, no, we won't grab the couple. Let's make it really hard for Jesus because it'd be harder to bring judgment against a woman. Let's just get the woman. He must have a soft place in his heart for women caught in this because he's got a, a female follower who was so into sexual sin and he doesn't do anything about that. So let's bring the woman and in the middle of him teaching, let's interrupt and we'll just drag her in. Just having caught her in the, in the act of adultery, let's drag her in front of the crowd and we'll, we'll put him in a catch-22 situation where we'll say, All right, Jesus, you know the law. The law specifically commands that anyone caught in adultery must be put to death. They were correct. Leviticus and Deuteronomy, they do not prescribe a range of, of penalties for this sin. It doesn't say, you know, you could give a penalty up to the point of... No, it says they must be put to death. This evil must be purged from the land. Kill them. Stone them to death. That is the command of the law. And so they're like, this is going to put Jesus in an impossible situation. We will remind him of what the law says. And now, in front of the crowd, we'll put him on the spot. He's got to do one of two things. He's either got to say, yep, let's kill her right here and now. And he'll be going against who he is and how he's taught. And the people will despise him for that. And they probably would have. Or he can stand up for the woman. And the only way that he can do that is to say, don't do what the Bible says that you should do. And we'll have him then. He will be nailed to the wall. And we can say to the people, you see, this man does not know God. He teaches against the Word of God. What are you possibly going to do to that? It really is a bind, isn't it? I mean, that's a brilliant plan. 
So they create that moment. But Jesus bent down and he started to write on the ground with his finger. Now I've heard all the preachers who ever preached this passage talk about what he's writing on the ground. I don't care. I don't care what he wrote on the ground. If it mattered, John would have told us. Everybody wants to say, he's writing out the sins of the men who have stones in their hands. Or he's writing the names of the women that they've slept with. I don't think it's any of that stuff. Honestly, John's so, so specific to say, the woman was caught in the act of adultery and dragged in. I can only imagine that these hard-hearted people who were trying to create an awkward moment, they, they didn't go, now let's make sure you get all your clothes on and get everything covered. They just grabbed her and probably just drug her in. And so it's a very embarrassing and compromising situation. I think personally, the reason that Jesus bends over twice and John's real specific about that is, I think he is averting his gaze from the woman. I think he is trying to not shame her and allow a stumbling block for himself. But it doesn't really matter. He just tells us Jesus bent down, starts to write on the ground. And when they kept questioning him, he finally straightened up and said to them, If any one of you is without sin, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. And again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. A brilliant response. Perfect response. Just one of the sharpest thoughts in all of the New Testament. And at this, those who heard began to go away one at a time. The older ones first, until only Jesus was left with the woman standing there. And Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Now, tragically, this wonderful story and this profound response has become one of the most misapplied, misinterpreted lines in all the New Testament. Because liberal thinking today, people who are so open-minded and and who've really let go of all the ethical teachings of Scripture, they will always hold on to one final virtue. They'll hold on to one final truth. You can bank on this. Their favorite verse of the Bible is pretty much universally the same. Judge not. Now, they misapply what Jesus said about judge not, but that becomes their, their one last virtue is don't be judgmental. So if we're not judgmental, then that means you can't ever talk about anybody else's sins. The only sin you could ever talk about is your own, and it's up to you to judge whether or not what you do is really a sin. And so, you know, when Jesus says, if any of you is without sin, you can be the one to cast the first stone, we misapply that and say, so what Jesus meant was you can't ever talk about anybody else's sin. Because you're being judgmental. You're, you're throwing stones. Well, you miss the point if you don't read the next verse, the final verse of this story. This is the verse that matters so much. This is the truth and grace verse. Jesus concludes the conversation by saying, Then neither do I condemn you. Go now and leave your life of sin. Isn't that an awesome response? Isn't that an awesome description of how to respond to broken behavior? Isn't that a great way, not only for God to deal with us, but when we have to address the lives of the people that we care about, to be able to model exactly what Jesus did. What did Jesus do? He defended the woman in a very clear way. He kept them from killing her. He did not bring harsh condemnation. He didn't use shame or embarrassment at all. In fact, he was doing what he could to shield her from the shame and humiliation that the legalists were bringing on her. And he said very clearly, I do not condemn you. And by implication, I just ran off all the people who did. 
Aren't you grateful that Jesus still does that today? I've got some great news as a footnote. If there's no human being that condemns you for the junk that you do, there is somebody else who's not flesh and blood, and he condemns you all the time for what you've done. His name is Lucifer, and he has lots of invisible followers. And they whisper in your ear and in your thoughts, and they condemn you all day long. I just want to remind you that if you belong to Jesus, the Word says there's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That the blood of Jesus has cleansed you from the guilt and stain of your sin, and it cleanses you from a guilty conscience. That it is not the Spirit of God that keeps coming back and condemning you for the things that you've done. Jesus says, I don't condemn you. There is an enemy who's the accuser of the brethren, and he condemns you, but you have the authority in Jesus' name to shut him up. And, and you need to do that on a daily basis as he speaks his condemnation to you. Jesus said, I don't condemn you. But now you go and leave your life of sin. Don't you love the balance of that grace and truth? I mean, by Jesus' actions, he was declaring, I love you. I care about you. I'm not here to beat you up or embarrass you. But I am not going to dance around the truth. I'm not going to pretend that it's not here. There's no debating what's taken place. You were caught in the act of adultery. You were doing something that's so destructive for you, for your family, for your future, for another family. I'm not here to beat you up about that. But I'm going to say as directly as I know how, you've got to leave that. You've got to change that. Friends, that's the real Jesus. That's the balance of grace and truth. And that's the balance we've got to hold on to. It's difficult, isn't it? Now, there are some specific issues in our time which have become for us kind of the hot potatoes for us to know how to handle. The, the four that to me seem to stand out as the hottest potatoes of our day in no particular order would be abortion, sexual sin in general, just sexual acting out with people that we're not married to, um, same-sex issues, gay, lesbian, bisexual, transgender, all, all of the, the same-sex issues and um, the, the fourth and final one, I just went blank on my thoughts there. Oh, just, just divorce in general. That the church has really struggled with knowing how to address those issues in a way that balances grace and truth. So, I mean, what winds up happening, in my opinion, on those four subjects is we tend to run to one extreme camp or the other. It's either let's don't talk about those at all. And let's just say, you know, that's up to you and you've got to choose how to live your life. And we're not going to call those things sins. We're just going to we're just going to sort of let them be what they are. Or we're going to just really hammer those things. And we're going to leave everybody feeling like if you've been guilty of any of those four sins, you're marked. God looks at you differently. And whether we say it or not, we look at you differently. That just that really is sort of would you agree that that sort of sums up how the church has dealt with those those four biggies? And so the question becomes, how do we deal with those things? And I'm not talking about in simply like a broad philosophical sense of, okay, how are we, when we sit in our small group Bible study time this week, how are we going to address the issue of gay, lesbian, bisexual, transgender? So, no, I'm not talking about that, that level. I'm talking about at the real life level of you know people. Who are caught up in bad decisions, bad choices, and lifestyles that are destructive. 
how do you as a follower of Christ, how do you interact with that? How do you deal with that? Because this makes such a huge impact on that person for good or for bad. And they're there. They're in your life. And by the way, I'm not talking about this as if these problems exist out there but not in here. Everything that I just named, everything I just named, these are very real issues right here in the room. These are real issues in the lives of the people who are watching online today and the lives of those of you listening today. And, of course, the list could be a lot longer, but I think we can agree that these become four difficult issues for us to address. I'm just going to say a quick word about each one. First of all, abortion. The reputation of the church in our generation is, you know, that we just, we hammer abortion, just, you know, evil, 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 and, and we've got to stamp it out. Well, on one level, that's right. Abortion is wrong. It's the unjustified taking of another human life, and it's not a... A position that we ought to you know, waver on. Abortion is wrong. But here's the thing about abortion. Every mother that I've ever talked to who has ever had an abortion in the past is so broken over that. They don't need to be beaten up and told how wrong abortion is. Every mother I've ever talked to who's had an abortion is grieving that at some level and trying to figure out what in the world to do about that. Struggling with the the thought of what that child would have become. The long and short of it is, in my opinion, the strongest thing that the church could do is not to go out and march to try and shut down abortion clinics that I wish they'd all shut down. I think it's a much stronger response of the church to reach out to people who have, first of all, had abortions or pressured women to have abortions and who now are having to deal with all the guilt and shame and brokenness that comes from that and trying to help them get to a better place and just as importantly to reach out and communicate a positive message of life. And for those of you who are in difficult situations and who, who've made decisions or things have been done to you and you are in a, in a terrible place that it is an unplanned and unwanted pregnancy that there are better alternatives than the taking of a human life. We're not here to beat anybody up about this. And hey, listen, there are plenty of people under the sound of my voice right now who have had abortions. Let me say to you clearly, God loves you and so do we. You aren't any different than anybody else in the room. God hasn't marked you in some way. That sin is covered by the blood of Jesus just like any other sin that we confess. And it is remembered no more. Those who've committed sexual sin... Yes, the Scripture is clear that it has a unique impact on us because Paul says it's a, it's a sin that's done within the body and there are spiritual attachments that often will accompany that. But the same thing, the blood of Jesus is sufficient and that can be dealt with so that it, the stain of that is completely removed. The, the third one is, in my opinion, in this moment of time and particularly in this decade is the diciest issue and that is the, the same-sex attraction issue. And man... The church has gotten so tangled up in this one because the position of the church has always, in our lifetime, run to the two extremes that we've talked about. On the one hand, there are people who are just, man, we've got to take a stand, we've got to legislate, we've got to blah, blah, blah. Can I just tell you, you are not going to legislate this issue away. You, you can legislate all that you want to. And I'm not saying that there shouldn't be you know, sound decisions made at the level of government, but you, you can make all the laws that you want to. You will not govern people's sexual behavior. So good luck trying to fix it at the level of politics you want. The other extreme, though, is 
look, we just need to be more understanding and we need to be more progressive in our thinking and just understand people are born the way that they're born and if God made them that way, then they ought to be able to live out how they feel. Friends, that's just as wrong. Jesus stays dead center on the subject that there is right and there is wrong. That there is behavior that is wicked and there is behavior that is pleasing to God. And whatever the behavior is that's wicked, no matter how natural it may feel for us, and can we just agree? There is a bunch of sin that feels very natural, that is very instinctive. Can anybody relate to what I'm talking about? Oh, come on. Who in the world are you kidding? Everybody in this room, it is your instinctive behavior to run to sin. You may not run to the same sin that I do, but you run to sin that's just as wicked. We all feel a natural draw to sin. And we could equally say, well, God made me this way. God made you a human being, and every human being is fallen. And the good news is God isn't content to leave us fallen and broken. He is wanting to restore and redeem what is broken within us. And the correct message of the church is not to to bash and ostracize people who struggle with same-sex attraction. Neither is it the message of the church to just go, well, if it's how you feel and if it's how you think you were made, then you just live in that and it'll be okay. The truth of the matter is we are all born with different kinds of brokenness. And if you weren't broken enough when you got born, broken human beings raised you. and, And you were even more broken, most of us, by the time you got grown. And if you want to know the truth of the matter, while we'll never completely crack this nut of understanding where the same-sex attraction thing comes from, you know, now that we're we're getting much better at understanding genetics and all, they're they're understanding the coding of our DNA where they're saying, you know, there are certain people whose DNA is such that they are more prone to certain things like addictive behaviors that they're saying, we can identify in a person's DNA where that comes from. It doesn't matter. It doesn't change the fact, if it's in your DNA that, that you're going to behave a particular way more easily than the next person, it doesn't make the behavior okay. If we could find a, a mutation in somebody's DNA that makes them more prone to violence, it doesn't mean that we go, okay, so go knock everybody in the head that you want to. Be a mass murderer. We don't care. You don't treat it that way. We just understand it's part of the brokenness of man, that whether part of it's our DNA or if it's, it's you know, mostly or all our upbringing or the, or the traumas of life, it doesn't matter Stuff has happened that has broken us. Whether it was stuff that happened in your family line and you inherited it from the time you were born or stuff that happened to you since you were born. We're all broken. And the good news is we don't have to stay broken. Now, the thing as a church that we've got to be careful to do is on this biggest hot potato issue is stop acting like the people who struggle in this particular area are freaks. That they're somehow different from us. The truth be told, there are plenty of people who are listening to what I'm talking about right now that you struggle with this issue. And let me say to you as clearly as I can, that doesn't make you any different from the rest of us. It just makes you one of us. We all struggle with stuff. And the heterosexual people who are like going, I just can't buy into what the preacher is saying on this one. He's just way off base. You tell me how that struggle is any different than your heterosexual struggle with, at times, feeling attracted to somebody you're not married to. You tell me how that's any different. And when you really get down to it, tell me what's really different about any form of our sin. The fact of the matter is, 
the only thing that, that makes us different is whether we're inside the circle of those who've become followers of Christ and have the Holy Spirit living in us to empower us to begin to deal with our drives and desires that aren't pure and to change them into something that are pleasing to God. And as a church, we've got to learn how to lovingly embrace broken people who are struggling with any and everything and not look at them and go, oh man, that's just sick, that's just messed up. But to just say, hey, we're all messed up and we're all being put back together. So let's talk about how we can move forward in relationship. And, and then the fourth one is divorce. And it's, it's been a tricky one that the church has struggled with for a long time. And part of what's tricky about it is sometimes divorce is sin and sometimes it's not. But divorce is always terrible. I say that having been through one. It's just always bad. It's beyond bad. Everybody who's ever been through a divorce knows what I'm talking about. You'll spend years, if not the rest of your life, trying to recover from this thing. It's so bad. It's why God hates divorce. Once again, it's easy for the church to either, you know, brand everybody who's divorced as, oh, man, you know, you, you hardly feel like you belong because you really don't belong because you're divorced. And on the other hand, to just treat it like, ah, it's fine. If you're ready to swap spouses, you can trade in for a newer model. Neither of those messages is the appropriate one. What we want to do is hold up the good news of how God esteems marriage, lifelong commitment together. And so Jesus was that. He taught us how to confront sin without condemning people. Two final things and I'm done. The fourth, I said there is a caveat to Jesus not condemning. Actually, there was one group that Jesus condemned that he did it consistently and he did it hard. Jesus did harshly condemn religious condescension and pretense. I'm just going to share one passage with you. In Matthew 23, uh, we don't have time, but if you just want to see how harshly he opposed this religious people, who, who bashed others and who pretended that they were more spiritual than they were, go home and read all of Matthew 23. He begins by saying, The teachers of the law and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat, that is, in the seat of judgment. So you must be careful to do everything they tell you. He's basically just warning the people at a real practical level. Yeah, if you don't follow their rules, you're going to get in a lot of trouble. But he says, don't do what they do, for they do not practice what they They tie up heavy, cumbersome loads, and they put them on other people's shoulders. But they themselves are not willing to lift a finger to move them. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You're like whitewashed tombs, which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside they're full of bones, the dead, and everything unclean. You snakes, you brood of vipers, how will you escape being condemned to hell. It's funny. The one group of people that over and over Jesus confronted. He wasn't worried about how it sounded to anybody else. He hammered them. It was the religious elite who put other people down. Who just made more and more rules for them to make life more burdensome. And who never extended any grace or any help to enable people to get beyond where they were. And to them, Jesus' message, you're a bunch of snakes. You're like a brood, just a pile of vipers, and there is no way that you're going to escape going to hell if this is how you live your life. Ouch. So interesting that the only people Jesus condemned were church people, synagogue people. We better sit up and pay attention to that. It is religious pretense and condescension. He didn't hate religious people. Jesus was a deeply religious person. It was people who used religion for their benefit and to put others down that he despised. And to them, 
His message was one of woe to you, woe to you. Seven woes that he gives them in Matthew 23. And he pretty much concludes the thought with, you won't escape hell. It's what you deserve if this is how you live your life. Fifth and final truth. One other thing I wanted to say about this. The line in there when he says, these people, they tie up burdensome, cumbersome loads and they put them on people's shoulders. That line, but they themselves are not willing to lift a finger to move them. I want you to underline that line because that defines a big part of what makes a church a healthy church. That defines whether you're healthy or not. Because every church is filled with broken people. Some just clean up better than others. But the thing that defines a healthy church is a healthy church says broken people are always welcome here. And we're going to be a church that instead of condemning broken people, that we help broken people get to a healthier place. It's why Celebrate Recovery is a centerpiece of our ministry. It's not the only one, but it is a key piece. Because if you come to Celebrate Recovery, you're saying, I'm broken and I need help being put back together. Celebrate Recovery is a clearly thought out, well-defined plan for moving from brokenness to a place of wholeness. As a church, as we add new ministries over time, that's what they need to be targeted around. Is helping broken people to get to a better place. You won't hear me planning rallies to go march against the things that we hate. What you will see us willing to do is to devote unlimited energies to those ministries that help broken people get to a place of wholeness. Fifth and final truth. At the heart of it all, the core message of Jesus and of Christianity, we could pretty well sum it up in these three words. Love, forgiveness, and obedience. Now, of course, the... The other word that if we were going to make four words would be the fourth one is is the word faith. But it's the key word behind forgiveness and obedience. I'm just going to briefly share some passages that sum up why these three are the big ones. Jesus said in John 3.16, God loved the people of this world so much that he gave his only son so that everyone who has faith in him will have eternal life and never really die. The message of the church always has to be this message. God loves you. It may be that you're in church today for the first time in a long time. Or it may be that you're on the verge of just giving up on church and this whole Christianity thing. Wherever you are, I just want to say as clearly as I can, God loves you. You may have been around some people who horribly misrepresented the person of Jesus and his message Regardless of what they've said to you and done to you in the name of religion and church and God, forget them and just know the truth. God loves you. He sent His Son to die in your place so that you could be free from your sin and the punishment that goes with that. And once we respond in faith to the love of God, here's the thing that has to mark us. What Jesus says in John 13:35 where he says it's your love now for one another that will prove to the world that you're my disciples it's the biggest reason that people get turned off to church is the people who say that they follow Jesus don't imitate the fact that Jesus says hey here's the the defining mark for us that we love each other i came not because i was mad at the world and wanted to condemn it i came because i am god and i love the world and when you come to know me and follow me the thing that will mark you the most is a love for people, not just people like you, that you'll love people who aren't like you, that you'll love people who are good and people who are bad. Love's the first word. The second word's forgiveness. Ephesians 1 says, 
We've been ransomed through His Son's blood. And we have forgiveness for our failures based on His overflowing grace. This is the second half of the good news. It's not just that God loves you, but it is that God has made a way through the death of Jesus. That Jesus took in His body all the shame and the punishment that our sins deserved so that we can experience complete forgiveness from God. I want to ask you this real pointy question. If you've zoned out in the course of this message, tune me back in. Have you personally experienced and received the forgiveness of God? Students, have you personally received God's forgiveness in your life? Jesus died so that you could, but it doesn't happen until you enter into this transaction and respond in faith, trusting Christ. Having done that, having experienced and received the love of God and the forgiveness of God, here's the thing that will always follow, the third word. Obedience. Jesus said, if you love me, obey my commandments. First John 5 says, loving God means obeying his commands. And his commands are not too hard for us. Never get this backwards. I've counseled with so many people over the years who are at that point that maybe some of you are right now where you're thinking, I, I haven't done this yet. I don't think I've ever experienced what you're talking about. But I don't, I don't think I've gotten good enough to do that just yet. That's backwards thinking. Jesus never tried to reform our behavior so that he could then accept us. We'd never get there. Stop trying. Jesus said, I accept you just as you are. If you will receive my love and my forgiveness, if you'll receive me into your life. And then once you've you've done that, you suddenly have a power living in you. You can begin to obey the commands of God. And John said, here's the cool thing. It's not even... It's not too much for us. It's not too difficult then. Why? Because I'm not just doing it in my own strength. God is living in me, changing me, enabling me to live pleasing to Him. And He'll do that in your life. But again, the bottom line question, have you received the forgiveness of God? Have you received Christ in your life so that you now live differently? Because it's not enough... To just say, hey, I went to Bible school, I said a prayer, I got baptized. The real test is, have I lived a different kind of life as a result of that? Because if not, all I had was just a a little religious experience. Jesus said, you know, many will say to me on that day, the day of judgment, you know, Lord, Lord, didn't I prophesy in your name and perform miracles and do all this religious stuff? And I'll say to you, depart from me, I never knew you. You missed the point. The point is, I'm inviting you into a relationship where we'll really know each other and where you'll have a different power for living. You'll want to live differently because I'm in charge and I'm living in you and it's changing how you think and function. All of that begins with a very simple exchange where we just go, God, I am broken. I'm realizing I'm one of those messed up broken people that you came for and I can't fix it. So would you come live in me and work in me? Would you forgive me? And would you start changing me? And if that's what you want to do today, there's no better time than right now.